Welcome back to another episode of Sales with Aslan, your weekly therapy session for those who sell for a living and those who help those who sell for a living. And you people are not going to believe who has joined the podcast this week. We have gone back to the 1969 Miracle Mets and found Art Shamsky wandering the halls of the selling universe. Art, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, and Art is not alone on this podcast because we found his daughter, Terry Burkhart, who uh, is fondly a part of the Aslan family. Terry, welcome to you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. And because Art got to bring his daughter to the show, I thought maybe I would bring my daughter, who also works for Aslan. So we are also joined by Samantha Cassidy, also known as Sam. Sam, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so we got a family affair and we are going to talk all things baseball and selling and just have a real good uh, family discussion. But first, I want to know what's frosty, cold and refreshment and, and refreshing in front of all of you. So, Art, why don't we start with you? Because I think you might have started drinking yours already. Yeah, I, uh, I pulled out a um, an El Presidente. I'm a, a good friends in the Dominican Republic who bring me back some beer once in a while and I live in New York, so I can get it up here someplace, but they're nice enough to bring me back some, some bottles of El Presidente. So I've got a real cold one right here and uh, enjoying this conversation and uh, having a beer. All right. Well, that's the, that's the best way to do it. Sam, what do you have in front of you? So I have selected Exhibit A Brewing Company's IPA called the Cat's Meow. Ooh because I do have a cat, as yeah. everyone at Aslan knows. That is true. Bucky gets a shout out. And it does say <laughs> on the can, eight out of 10 cats say that their owners prefer it. So. Excellent. All <laughs> right. What, what is the alcohol by volume in yours? Well, I can't tell if it says 6.5 or 8.5. So oh, I guess we'll find out. We'll find out if you're still <laughs> awake at the end of this. Uh, Terry, what do you have in front of you? So I'm, I'll be kicked off the podcast. I'm not much of a beer drinker. I'm more of a cocktail, but I, I was afraid that I would miss out on something. So I grabbed what was in my refrigerator, which is just a Michelob Ultra. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fine. I've, I've been known to have those on here too. Um, yeah. Those are like water though. You're going to be fine. You're going to be. That's why fine. I like it. That's <laughs> why I can do it. Well, let's see. I wound up with a Cisco Brewers. This is from Nantucket up in our neck of the woods. Whale's Tail Pale Ale. Not, not easy to say. I was excited super for fast. you to try to pronounce that. <laughs> <laughs> and that is 5.6% alcohol by volume. So, well, welcome everybody. Let's crack those beverages if you haven't already and take a taste. Oh, that is good. That is good. Well, obviously the star of the show here today is Art and um, the ladies will help me uh, interview Art today. We'll talk about a bunch of different subjects, but I wanted to kind of start with you know, there's a lot of similarities between sports and selling uh, in general, but baseball, I think in particular, Art, and, and you and I kind of talked about this a few minutes ago, the failure rate in sales is extremely high. You know, if you close one out of every four or five deals that come across your desk, you're doing pretty well. It's the same thing in baseball, isn't it? Yeah, Talk it is. Uh, it is. Baseball is... Uh is a game where you have to understand you're going to have failure much more than you have success. And, and I guess as a young player, um, you, you see all these highlights on ESPN or you see these great things going on. But the reality of it is when you play consistently, you're going to fail more than you succeed. So uh, I always tell young, young youngsters that I work with, and if I do clinics and things of that nature, that try to understand that you're going to fail more than you succeed and learn from those failures. It's not like if you have to have a bad game and, 
use an example going in baseball, going 0 for 4 in a game and you strike out one or two times, but learn from each one of those at-bats because at some point you might be facing that same pitcher again. It might be the same circumstance. So it's just not a complete failure in your on your part, but you have to learn from each time you, you go up to bat. And I think uh, I look back on my career, as many bats as I at bats I had in games, I, I wish I would have done more of that. I really realized that as I got on in my career, as I got older, that, that even though you, you're unsuccessful, that that learning process from each time you go up to hit is, is something for the next time. And I think that's what I try to instill in youngsters when I talk to them, because baseball is a great, it's a great sport for learning teamwork. That it builds humility. You have to understand that you're going to have these failures, but but it all, the teamwork part of it is such a great thing for, for kids. And, and, and um, I, you know, I love the game and uh, it's, it, it's, it's something that I started to do when I could barely walk. And, and I remember growing up in St. Louis where I, in the Midwest and being a St. Louis Cardinal fan and my dad taking me to the game, but just as soon as I could walk, he was out throwing soft tossing with me and I learned learning the game with my friends and, and, and the camaraderie that you get from baseball and the learning that you get about life in, in general is terrific. And I, I was lucky enough to play 13 years professionally and, and really more than lucky to be part of a world championship team in 1969 that it really kind of, uh, everybody remembers about it. Really, nobody really talks about the other 12, but, but the fact that I was able to play um, in the low minors and work my way up to the big leagues and play on a championship team for me uh, is fantastic. And it, it really is a part of, a, you know, just a topic of my life. It's all people talk about now, but the, re the fact remains that baseball does teach you these wonderful things. And, 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 and I think the failure rate is so high, but the reality is if you can deal with those failure rates, and you, you will be, you'll be successful in any walk of life. Well, and, and I, and I want to touch on uh, 1969 because um, Terry, I know you were young when, when that happened, but obviously um, you and your dad um, have a great relationship. And I'm wondering from your perspective, what types of things dad's career in baseball and your career in sales, you know, did you guys ever talk about that? Did you guys ever, you know, learn from each other from the baseball and the selling point of view? You know, I don't, I don't remember a time where I was sat down and taught a lesson, but I think it's the modeling that he did it just to being to persevere and to strive to, to be the best that you can be. But, you know, the one thing that we don't talk about is, is really, I mean, my father's truly the kindest. He's got the biggest heart and you can be, you can think of other people and you can have a good heart and still be extremely competitive and successful. And I think he taught me those things, which helped in life more so than sitting me down and saying, you know, this is what you need to do. And this is what you need to know. Well, and, and Art, back, you know, I was just thinking about when you fail at the plate in baseball or you fail in sales, one of the things that human beings tend to do is they carry that with them, like you talked about. And you know, in baseball, after you make an out, you got to go back in the field in some cases and you've got to, you know, clear your mind. And we talk about clear your cash, right? You know, when you got to listen to a customer and you've just had a really bad call. What's that like when you've just, you know, struck out with the bases loaded and now you got to go back out to the outfield and, and kind of clear your mind and actually play good defense? How does that work through the mind of a baseball player? Well, that's really interesting. That's why I used to like to play first base a lot more than the outfield because the outfield, you could be out there and uh, you'd have to back up plays and you might go a whole game never touching the ball. So sometimes you, you, you have a, a, a bad at bat and you got to run to the outfield. And now you start thinking about what did I do wrong? What's going to happen the next time, et cetera. But at first base, you were always in the game almost every play. So I used to love playing first base because of that. But it, it is, it, you're exactly right. You have to just kind of 
kind of push it aside um, and, and, and just really, really kind of focus on your next at bat and try to have, again, what I said before, have learned something from that last at bat, particularly if you're facing the same pitcher. I know in, in amateur baseball or amateur sports, uh, sometimes you don't face the, the pitchers over again like you do and you get into professional sports. But in, in the major leagues, you're going to face guys over and over again. And, and consequently, if you don't learn from each at bat or each time you're out on the field, then you're, you're missing something. And I think that the guys that I, 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 I played with and played against it, the ones who, who were able to do that, were able to focus on not only this last at bat, but the next one and the next one and the next one after that. And I'll tell you an interesting story, um, and which really tells us tells them about, about what people think. I was remember playing first base in a game, and I know maybe I'm getting off on a, on a tangent a little bit here, but it's really apropos to what you asked me. Yeah. I was playing first base in the game, and the great Henry Aaron, who passed away uh, last year, a yeah. great Hall of Famer, a, a wonderful player to watch, and I idolized him, and when I got a chance to play against him, it was, it was the same as as a kid growing up, just watching him uh, uh, be that great player, and he got on first base one day, and I was playing first base, and uh, our manager at the time uh, went out to talk to the pitcher in the mound. So I had a second to say hello to him. You know, first base was great because you had a chance to say hello to the opposition. You know, yeah. the outfield, you never talk to anybody. <laughs> you're going to have to hit. But at first base, you always got a chance to say hello, how are you doing, whatever it might be. And he got on first base and I said to him, I said to him, Hank, uh, I, I got brazen enough to call him Hank, you know. And, and I said to him, how, how does it feel? coming to the ballpark knowing you're going to get three hits every day and he wasn't getting three hits every day but he looked to me like he was getting three hits every yes day. every time i saw him he was he was doing something and he very casually said to me you know i don't know if i'm going to get three hits today but if i don't get him today i'm probably going to get him tomorrow so all that told me was that he didn't worry about every at bat you know there were a lot of guys who who played the uh, professional sports in particular baseball you know, if they had a bad game, they might not be in there the next day, but he was one of those great stars that no matter what he did, he was going to be in there. But the fact remains that he, he had enough confidence in himself that he was going to be in, in there no matter what. So he didn't worry about that 0 for 4, but a lot of us had to worry about those games. But I think, I think he was exaggerating. I think he was, I think everybody who plays the game or plays sports worries about their performance and worries about how to get better and how to do things. And I think it just re re relates to what you said before that there's always going to be pressure, but you always have to learn from your experiences. You're always going to have, whether it's sales, having rejection or having some disappointments, sports is basically the same way. You're going to have games where you feel great and go over four. And you're going to have games where you say, oh, I can't believe I can get out there and play. I'm really not feeling great and go three for four, but that's the nature of sports and that's the nature of life. And so sometimes, Things happen, but you have to learn from each experience and every at bat. And 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 the reality of it is, uh, sports is a great is a great counterbalance to what we we do in life because a lot of things happen in sports that that uh, happen in real life. It doesn't seem it's not as exaggerated as it is in terms of sports because we read about all these great things that happen. But still, the basic things you have to succeed, and if you don't succeed. You're going to get frustrated. If you get frustrated, you're not going to learn. So you have to deal with all these things as a player. And it, and it works the other side, too, when you're in the field, when you make errors and you try to have to come back from that. It's the same thing. It's all learning process. Well, and it's, you know, we've heard I, a lot of people have, have said that hitting a round ball with a round bat is the hardest thing to do in sports. Right. And so there's a chance that people uh, could 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 be very depressed if they're if they're not scoring, if they're not, you know, uh, performing well. 
you mentioned Hank, Aaron, and his confidence. And I want to talk a little bit about how confidence can breed future success. Uh, but there's this cockiness that can come, which I don't think Hank Aaron ever had. And I certainly don't think you had um, that, that certain athletes may have today. What's, what's that line between being confident in your ability and then cocky? Because I want to ask you a little bit about the four home runs in a row in 1966. I think you have a bat in the Hall of Fame because uh, you must have been a little cocky that night when you came home after hitting what, three one day and one the next or something like that? Yeah, well, I, was, I hit three in one game on a Friday night in, in when I was playing with the Cincinnati Reds before I came over to the Mets. And, and uh, just as an addendum, and I don't say this uh, egotistically, but I believe I'm the only person to ever hit three in a game that didn't start the game. I wasn't in the starting lineup. Art, and I did read that on Wikipedia, so you're correct. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what's interesting about that game is that um, um, – I hit, uh, came in the eighth inning and hit a home run. And then we went into extra innings, tied the game up and we went in extra innings and I hit two in extra innings. And you would think if you hit two home runs in extra innings, you're going to win the game, particularly at home. We were at home in Cincinnati. We lost that game. We get rained out the next day. And talk about frustrating. I'm not in the starting lineup on that uh, the next game after that, which is a Sunday. This was Friday night, no game on Saturday. And I'm not in the starting lineup on Sunday after hitting three home runs in a row. And uh, which was very frustrating for me. And, and um, you know, and I wasn't one of these guys that would get so angry and wanted to charge the manager and find out what happened. I just kind of let it go. And also was very young at the time. But uh, the manager sent me up to pinch hit uh, in the fifth or sixth inning in that game on Sunday and then hit another home run to put us ahead in that game. And um, we ended up losing that game also. So I hit four home runs in a row. And uh, we lost uh, both games, but the bat is in Hall of Fame, all Hall of Fame. And I get a lot of people who go up to Cooperstown and see it and, and uh, get in touch with me and let me know it's in this display where uh, it has special feats. And so for me, it's very, uh, it's very nice to have people uh, tell me they saw it. And, uh, you know, just very nice to be able to, since I didn't make the Hall of Fame as a player, it's nice to have a piece of equipment there. It's basically what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. And, and, and I just think that whole, maintaining, you know, the thing we learn from sports and, and selling, frankly, is that maintaining the valleys are not too low, the highs are not too high, just sort of keeping everything in perspective. And you seem, you seem to have been able to do that for your, for your career. Well, one of the things that, that, that makes that 1969 World Championship team that I played on with the Mets so much more remarkable in a sense is because I, when I got there, um, I came, I got traded to the winter of 1967 and I came to the Mets my first year, 1968. The Mets, for their first, what, seven years, 62, they came into existence, were known as the lovable losers. They were the worst team in baseball. They, they were losing 100 games every year. And, and when we went into spring training uh, after my first year there, 1968, nobody thought we were ever going to do anything. We, we had some great young pitching, but uh, had some good defense, but but still were not a really good team. And And to go ahead and then win a World Series the next year when nobody expected you to do it. That, that made it that much more special. I, I, one, of my, one of my sad things that I, I think about is that uh, Terry and her sister were, were so young, and I don't think they really appreciate the magnitude of what happened back then because uh, at a time when the war in Vietnam was tearing the country apart, the, the city of New York was really going under financially, socially, spiritually, morally, all sorts of reasons that that the city was just going to go under. And what we did as a team, 
uh, we made people feel better about their lives for a brief period of time because uh, they had somebody, something to hang on to. And, and it was an interesting year for New York because that particular year, the Jets in New York won the Super Bowl. We won the World Series. And the following um, May of 70, New York Knicks won the NBA championship all for the first time. So you had three teams winning championships in the area. And so, but you had to put it in, in perspective of what was going on in the city and the country and the world at the time. And so that's why that team in 69 is so special because of what we did for the city in New York and the people who followed us. And, and I think that's what made that, that particular team so lovable, even what, 52 years now later that people still talk about it. Uh, we had a 50th anniversary uh, in 2019, and that's the book you mentioned earlier, uh, After the Miracle. It's a book that I wrote along with a gentleman by the name of Eric Sherman about uh, how, how the, the rape relationships developed with teammates, not only because we won, but basically because we were so bad the year before. Yeah. And so you hung on to these relationships because it was important to stick together. And, and even though there were some changes for the new season, it was basically the same team that finished ninth, a half a game out of last place in 1968. But the next year when they went to division play and had two divisions, we won the division, the pennant in the World Series. And, and, and to do that, coming from a team that, that finished ninth the year before, was so incredible. And so that lasting relationship, those lasting relationships have lasted uh, for, for all these years. And unfortunately, we've lost a number of guys on the team. But, but uh, I think that's what made that team in my life, uh, you know, really so special because of being part of that team, because of where it came from. It's not a team that was supposed to win and go ahead and, and, and went ahead and won. It's a team that nobody thought could win and, and, and when it succeeded in, in winning 100, uh, 100 games during the season and beat a terrific Baltimore Oriole team in the World Series. So those are, are wonderful memories for me and I'm, I'm still in New York because of it. But again, it all has to do with, with uh, how I related to my teammates and they related to me and, and, and how we relied on all of our teammates to succeed. It was a team where everybody contributed to the success of the team. And that really was the true legacy of the 1969 Mets. Well, and you, since you kind of went there, I was, I was curious, you know, the, the book appears to have, have come out of, and I haven't read the book yet, but I will, um, you know, that, that visit you took out to visit with Tom Seaver and some other teammates um, toward the end of his life. Are you comfortable telling us a little bit about what went on there and what you guys shared and how it led to the book? I'd be more than happy to. Uh, the, the 69 Mets have, were such a phenomenon and still remain a phenomenon that more books have been written about that team than any sports team in the history of sports. Mm. I, I venture to say that because I've, I've been involved in a bunch of not so much writing. I'm getting interviewed and people talk to me about it. And I know that so many books have been written about that team. And so we, when we sat down, Eric Sherman and myself, we wanted to write about the 50th anniversary, but we didn't want to write about the everyday, everyday, what, this game did, how this game worked out, et cetera, et cetera. We wanted to write something that was really kind of uh, going to memorialize that team in a, a different way. And we decided that we wanted to write about the friendships that had developed and the reliability of things that we did during the season where everybody contributed to the success of the team. And we wrote about what it meant to be part of that team and how many years, all these years later, we started writing it in 2000 and. 17 it came out in 2019 and we started writing about it um two years before the the anniversary and and when we started to do interviews we we looked at each other and we said listen i won't 
we knew it at the time, Tom Seaver, who was the biggest star of the team, was mm -hmm. not well. And so we decided that uh, we didn't want to do an interview with him over the phone. It just didn't seem like that was the way to do so. I talked to him and he, at that time, he just wasn't traveling, but he wasn't completely well, but we could still have conversations with him. And I said to him, Tom, we want to do a book about our friendship and everything else. And he said, that's great, but I'm not going to travel there. You, you got to come out here. And he was in Napa Valley in California, north of San Francisco. And so we decided to take a trip there. And then we said, well, let's bring a couple teammates. Um, we decided to bring three teammates with us, and, and it could have been any three teammates, but it turned out, and I'm going to read some names. I don't know if you know the name. One was Bud Harrelson, who had just announced that he was uh, under the weather, and he, not under, he was becoming sick with, with uh, Alzheimer's, and, and, um, and we brought out uh, Jerry Kuzman, who was the second best pitcher on the team, and Ron Sabota, who had made a ter terrific catch in game four of the World Series that Tom pitched in. And, and that seemed like the great idea, but the problem was we, we, we had to coordinate because everybody wasn't in New York. So to make a long story short, we coordinated this trip. And then when we were getting ready to leave, I talked to Tom and he said, you got to talk to my wife, Nancy, um, make sure everything's okay. So I talked to her and she said, you know, you guys are coming out here and uh, you know, Tom has good days and he has bad days. He was yeah. suffering from Lyme disease, but starting to have uh, some real, uh, real, problems remembering things and so it was really going through some some uh, some dark times but he was still cognizant and be able to talk and so she, we said let's let's roll the dice we paid for everybody to go out we got to San Francisco on a Friday afternoon I called to, to his house he said he didn't answer Nancy answered his wife and she said you know he's not feeling too good today um, let's wait till tomorrow well we only had one day because we got there Friday afternoon we had to go about 50 miles north of San Francisco um, we had all day Saturday, but Sunday we had to leave early because guys had to make connecting flights. So uh, we said, okay, let's, let's, let's see what happens. And we woke up Saturday. I called her. She said, you guys are in luck. He's feeling pretty good. Get here as soon as you can. And we spent eight or nine hours with Tom just reminiscing about how important that team was to, to all of us, not, not just him, but to all of us and how important it was for our our careers, our lives, all of our lives changed October 16th, 1969. And, and, and it, was just, it was just wonderful reminiscing um, of, about that particular year. And we all had vivid memories of that, that time. Now you're talking, what, 48 years earlier. And right. you know, we had these vivid memories, but to each one of us recalled almost everything that year and about how important everybody was on that team, how everybody contributed to the success of the team. And, and, and when we got, we got ready to leave that Saturday night, um, it was a bittersweet moment for me because, you know, we're all getting older. And, and at that point uh, he was ill and Buddy Harrelson was ill. And, you know, we, I got getting ready to leave and I, it was bittersweet in a sense because you just don't know if you're going to see these guys again, because yeah. things happen. As it turned out, he passed away, um, you know, not much later after we were out there. And so, and so the book itself, uh, After the Miracle, was really about, uh, even though it's about, it starts out about a trip to visit Tom and, and, and be with him during this illness, it's really about the friendship and the love we had for each other and the camaraderie we all have and the respect we have and the, and the friendship we still have today and that carries on even though we've lost 10 or 11 guys in that team. It just was one of those teams that, that it was remarkable in a sense. And part of it, again, goes back to the fact that we were so bad the year before. Yeah. And then 
to go ahead and win it all makes it that much better. You know, if you have a team that expected to win and you go ahead and win, it's great, no matter what you do. But if you have a team that's that's picked to finish last and goes ahead to win a championship, that's a different story. And so that's carried over all these years. And, and um, you know, it's just, it's, it's just so special to have been part of that team. And like I say, you know, I played 13 years and for all intents and purposes, nobody ever talks about the other 12. <laughs> but they were important to me because I had I developed wonderful relationships with guys. I started out in the minor leagues and with the Cincinnati Reds, and a lot of those guys went on to be uh, terrific players in the big leagues and were part of the big red machine, which is a great team in the 70s. The right. Red. Yeah. You know, I started my career with Pete Rose and Tony Perez and Johnny Bench and Tommy Harper and Lee May and all these guys that went on to have great baseball careers. And so uh, that part of my life has been great. And I've got two beautiful daughters, Terry and her sister, and uh, we, uh, it's been good. Uh, I just, again, I wish they were a little bit older to appreciate what went on and, but that would make them older. So I don't think they want to be older. But, uh, well, enough. <laughs> which Terry has already pointed out. She doesn't. She doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I don't know if this is unique to your team, but the, your, that group of, of men on that particular team, it's not, it wasn't just on the field. If you see them off the field, they are a cohesive unit off the field. Yeah. I mean, very a, a family. And I just think they worked well together. Um, but again, not just on the field. I mean, that, that was the same off the field. We'd get together. I've, I've been only to a handful of events with the whole team. And every time I go, that same group of people is huddled in a corner somewhere, yeah. talking and reminiscing and, and are very close. No, I... A lot of times we're, we're stretching the truth a little bit. Some of the stories, <laughs> the some stories of the ones went much more than but, but it's true. It's, uh, we've, 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 we've become stronger friends as the years going on. But again, when you were such a bad team, and, and, and go ahead and win it all. It, it makes it all special. And I tell people this and they look at me and they say, well, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. But I think in their history of baseball, if you know baseball and you know teams who have won World Series, you think back on certain years and you know that the 1927 Yankees were the great team with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. And then you say, uh, who, who won in 1969? And I would say 99% of the people know that the New York Mets won in 1969 because it was such a such an incredible experience and uh, again what we did for the city of new york and uh, for the country for, for, for the most part was made people feel better about their lives because of what was going on and and um, but again it wouldn't have happened unless all of us contributed to some success of that team because it was a really a team effort and i i know i emphasize that but we depended on each other we knew that if we took a an 0 for 4 in a game somebody else was going to pick it up pick us up and help us out and we got to the point where that, as far as teamwork, you couldn't find a better team to have that kind of co cohesiveness because we were we were so so dependent on each other, and it worked out. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that, and Terry, I'm so glad you brought that up and told shared your story of noticing that, um, you know, as a child. And or I wanted to ask you, like, as you were talking about those relationships you have with your teammates um, and how they're your family, and how important are your family, friends, your team as you navigate, um, excuse me, those peaks and valleys of any career, but specifically your career? Well, it's always important. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes I would take games home with me, and it was it was tough, but. Uh, you know, you have support from your family. Again, my the, the girls were pretty young when I was playing, um, but uh, 
my wife was wonderful and, and she she took uh, she she understood she was very young at the time too but but uh, we all we all understood that uh, this was our life but uh, friends and family are, are so important I mean, as i mentioned earlier but i wouldn't be a baseball player if i didn't have my friends who that's all when we when i was growing up that's all they wanted to do and i'm sure some of them wanted to be major league baseball players unfortunately that the, they didn't make it but and i was lucky enough to make it but the, without good friends and without support of family you just it's it's very difficult it's very it's very difficult there's a, it's a, you know you can't emphasize that enough and uh, and it's just uh, you know wonderful to look back on things that you did as a kid and, and as you grew up and, and had the support from uh, loved ones, not only loved ones but friends and family. It's 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 very very important. I know I I that just made me think of a personal story. I so obviously I work with my dad now here at Aslan, but when I was in college, um, I had an opportunity to interview to work with him um, at his previous company, which was about I think two hundred thousand employees. Is that right? And yeah. I vehemently refused i did not want to take advantage of a family relationship did not want to work with him for him whatsoever and flash forward three years i'm now at a much smaller company directly reporting to my father so no i i the friends and family are everything you know even in your professional life so well it looks like it worked out pretty good it sure did <laughs> well and and you know i i wanted to kind of close with with um you know, salespeople, athletes uh, performing best when the lights are the brightest, and you really did that. I was I was reading that. What did you hit? Five thirty eight in the NLCS that year. Uh, I mean, you talk about turning it up and turning it on when the lights are on. Uh, you did that, and that's uh, that's that's a special special way to uh, to to have a career. Uh, really appreciate you joining us. Anything uh, going on in your life today you want to talk about? What's what's keeping you busy these days? Well, I just uh, I'm doing a podcast now that I really enjoy. I really started doing it when the pandemic started. I wanted to I wanted to stay connected. You know, we were all kind of locked in at home and and uh, we're worried about what was going to happen. So I decided to do a podcast was starting to become popular, and I decided to do one it's very simply called the Art Shamsky Podcast, for lack of a better name. <laughs> um, but I, I wanted to, what I wanted to do was just not only do sports, but I wanted to do entertainment. And interesting today, I just uh, did one and will be up early next week with a great basketball player here in New York, uh, Walt Clyde Frazier. I don't know if you know the name. Absolutely. Great player with the Knicks and two championship years. And we go back 50 years. I knew him when I first came to New York. And, and it was such a wonderful experience to reminisce with him. But I try to do a little bit of, of entertainment and sports because I just feel like sometimes at this point in my life, the sports is great and it's still such a big part of my life, but I like the entertainment aspect where I can, I can, you know, do some other things and, and, and kind of broader, broaden the art audience. And so, so I, I try to do that. I'm on Twitter and I try to stay busy. I've been doing a lot of appearances on zoom, uh, personal appearances where I was doing, you know, in person before now they're on zoom and hopefully in the next few months, things will open up. So, I try to stay busy as I've gotten older, and, and 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 I understand that because I was part of that incredible team, I still get opportunities to 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 do things, and and just like today with with, with people like yourself to do things because I was part of that team, and I and I I, I don't take anything for granted because uh, I understand how important that one year was for me in my life. But I just try to stay busy, and I've got the, the two books out. I wrote the first book, which was called. Um, the Magnificent Seasons, about 1969 with the Jets, the Mets, and the Knicks all winning. 
and uh, and then came out with this book uh, a couple years ago after the miracle, which uh, hit the New York Times bestseller list, um, thankfully. And uh, and uh, you know you're always thinking. I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes thinking, well, what's my next book? What's my next project? You know, you just don't want to fade into the into the sunset. You just want to keep busy. And uh, and uh, Terry keeps me going. She's always urging me to do stuff and and stay busy. And so for that, I'm really thankful. But uh, but I'm very lucky. I have uh, two beautiful daughters and a wonderful family. And, uh, and um, you know, it's, it's just, and I, again, I get to do things like uh, with you, with two of you that are wonderful for me and, and people enjoy hearing some of the stories I tell. But uh, again, I'm very thankful for, uh, I've got nothing to complain about. You know, I always, uh, to put it in a nutshell, I always get people coming up to me or when I'm at doing an appearance and to say, don't you wish you were playing now and making all the money? And my first reaction in the game, and it's, it's much different now than when I played, but my first reaction is, oh, are you crazy? Of course I wish I was playing now making all the money. <laughs> but um, I don't know if you can see it. I put on my World Series ring. Uh, yes. Um, I don't know. There it is right there. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't change it for anything to be been part of that team. And, and, and for me, um, having played in an era that I think is the greatest era of, of baseball in the history of the game from the the, the mid '60s to the through the, the mid '70s, uh, with some of the greatest players uh, ever to play with Willie Mays, Aaron Clemente, uh, Sandy Koufax, uh, Bob Gibson. I mean, I can, I can go down the list. I don't want to bore you with all the names, but so many great players. So I was very lucky to play in that era against and with some of the greatest players who ever played. So for those two reasons, I'm I'm happy that I played in that, that particular era and got a chance to play on a championship team and. And so for me, I've got nothing to complain about, but I want to stay busy. I want to just keep, keep, uh, keep rolling along as long as I can and, uh, and uh, come up with ideas and throw stuff against the wall and hope some of it sticks and think about, you know, what I can do to help. And I try to help people too. I try to do as much charity work that I can and, and stay busy. I think that's important in my life. He's Art Shamsky. We had Terry and Sam to boot. What a what a fun conversation. One of my one of my favorite of the hundred and six or seven podcasts we've done. <laughs> I was gonna say uh, I think I might be the only person who's listened to all 107. <laughs> I think that's probably right. And yeah. I can attest to that. This was the most fun. <laughs> how many are you up to, Art? Are you, how many podcasts have you done? Uh, I do one every other week. I started in May, so I've probably done 40, 35, okay. 40 of them. Um, I've had some tried to do some uh, um, some real interesting people from uh, Bob Costas to Al Roker to uh, to uh, a lot of sports people to uh, just people that I think would be fun. And I try to what I try to do is because when you asked, I had Joe Namath on one time. I, I, I try to ask questions that are try to get some things out of people that maybe somebody else hasn't asked before. Not so much personal, but I mean, how many questions can you ask somebody like Joe Namath or Bob Costas or Al Roker? You know, they're always getting interviewed. So you just try to find something that kind of catches people's interest. And so that's what I try to do. And, and uh, not controversial. And even in my Twitters, uh, um, I tweeted out, tweeted out today. I don't know, Terry, you saw it today. I got another residual check. You know, they named the dog after me on this program. Everybody loves Raymond. <laughs> and I, I was on it in, in two, 1999. So I get these residual checks that they named this bulldog after me because the, the producer was a big fan. So I get this, uh, this check the other day in May for 14 cents. <laughs> so I got another one today for 38 cents. So I out today that I've now accumulated, what is it, 52 cents? <laughs> the residual. So I'm, I'm waiting to be able to buy some Bitcoin. 
There you go. Hopefully it'll expand into some uh, some uh, some uh, big big money. So that's what you know. That's what I try to do. I just try to, to stay busy and and um, and uh, you know when I got Terry reminding me about things about who should I should possibly interview and tweet about. So thank God she's still uh, she's still <laughs> doing that for me. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, tell this last quick story. I was at church this morning with my wife and um, our good friend Clark Murray, who is the biggest Mets fan in Rhode Island. I told him I was interviewing you this afternoon and he said, oh, my favorite. You have to tell him I love the books. He read both of them and has everything Met 69 you could possibly imagine. So shout out to Clark, a seasoned AT&T sales rep for the last several years. I would call him a grizzled vet, you know, that crafty veteran. <laughs> comes in out of the pen <laughs> well I'll, I'll tell you why don't we do this why don't you get uh, clark's uh, address for me and you can uh, give it to me or email or give it to terry she get to me and i'll send them a photo and, and say hello to them that would be awesome well you have been just a slice of heaven thanks so much for coming on the show terry thank you for putting it all together sam thanks for your first appearance on the show hopefully not the last no hopefully not the last <laughs> you guys get out there and share the podcast with your friends download and subscribe we want to get this out to as many people as we can we're always talking about other-centered selling here at Aslan, and we showed you another centered baseball player today. Hopefully you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next week on another episode of Sales with Aslan. Mm -hmm.